you have your Bibles, please turn to Galatians. Book of Galatians. We have made it into about halfway through the third chapter. As Paul is trying to address a very serious situation at these churches in this region of Galatia, he's not able to be there with them. But some folks have come in and started teaching things that aren't true. They've tried to bring back elements of the Old Testament ceremonial law that the Jews were instructed to operate under and trying to merge that together with the work of Jesus Christ. Um, And those things don't merge. And so he has been teaching um, in a pretty systematic way all the reasons that what they're doing is wrong. Um, and so the first couple chapters about um, he didn't teach that. Um, no man taught him that. that. What he taught them was direct what he received from the Lord. That's what made him an apostle. The Lord chose him to be his special messengers to the Gentiles. And so um, it's not right for someone to come in and change that truth later. So as he's getting into the third chapter, he's going to expound upon... Uh, that the concept of what Jesus Christ would do was set up in the Old Testament. And actually, it was preceded the even giving of the law in time. And so where he goes to is back to Abraham. Now, Abraham was an idolater, right? He lived around Babylon, really, um, with the Chaldeans. um, And God chose him plucked him out and said, you will leave where you're at, leave your father's land, his household, your family, and you're going to go to a place that I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to give you that land to you and to your seeds. It was a promise. It wasn't because Abraham had done anything. It's not that he'd earned it. God had made a choice, and it was going to happen. And so he alludes to that there was going to be this promise, and there was a promise made to him, but it wasn't just to Abraham it was a promise saying that in thee shall all nations be blessed. All right? It was to him and to his seed that was given. And the seed there is singular. This is not just saying generally Abraham's natural descendants. But that reference to his seed, his descendant, is the descendant that would come from Abraham, which is Jesus Christ. All right? So that promise was made to Christ. I'll have my tie on, y'all forgive me. Um, that promise was made to Jesus Christ before the world began, that God was giving him this people and that there was going to be an inheritance prepared for them and that Jesus would have to do the work of delivering them from their sins. It was a promise. It wasn't um, conditioned upon the merits of men. So that's what we're getting to. This is a promise, a free promise, a a gracious gift that wasn't... uh, a debt, all right? A debt is you do this and then I owe you, right? Y'all ever had a job? Come Friday, what do you expect? Payday, right? I've done my part, now you pay me, okay? Sometimes we think about God that way. That's not so, all right? He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us heaven by any stretch, right? We can't do anything to earn that, all right? But the love that he put upon us, that's the beauty of grace. Grace, it is... Freely 
bestowed, unearned. Okay, that's the beauty of the, the of the story of Jesus Christ and what He did is that it was free. He loved you because guess what, y'all? Naturally, we're not lovable, right? We're sorry. We're low down. We we cannot measure up to perfection, right? Period. I don't care how good of a day you're having. There's going to be a time in that day when you're going to think something that's inappropriate or vile. You're going to say something hurt or meanful. That's not completely true, right? There's no such thing as a white lie. Sometimes we can't say anything without hurting somebody's feelings. That's the time to keep our mouth shut, right? But there's no such thing as a lie that's okay, right? We are... Our our nature is to sin, right? That's, that's That's our default. It's only by God's grace and the indwelling Holy Spirit that we have the ability to do anything differently. Right? So it wasn't because we're so great, but He loved us anyway. Right? So that's the promise that's being discussed here. And there's going to be this kind of back and forth in the rest of this chapter that's of what are you doing versus what's been done for you. Right? That's, that's the kind of the dichotomy, the two different positions. And he's trying to explain that what Christ has done and what He was um, going to do was set up. It was teed up in the Old Testament and it's pointing to it all consistently. And So you don't have to go, as these people have done, and try and add in these elements of, of baggage really to themselves. Alright, so that's enough kind of precursor. Let's jump into it. Alright. He, uh, he talked about in, in chapter 15 where we ended up um, that in a natural sense, if you have a contract between two people and you agree to terms... All right, and it's been confirmed. It's now signed, sealed, delivered, whatever you want to do to formalize it. One person can't later come in and make changes to it. Right? That's just that's that's contract law. That's basic. All right? He says in that same sense that the promise that God gave to Abraham, it was hundreds of years before the law was given to Moses. And so that law doesn't change that promise that he already gave Abraham, that in you shall all the nations be blessed. All right? And in Christ all nations, that includes Gentiles. That's, that's good. Guess what? We're Gentiles. All right? It just means a non-Jew, one who's not born from a, a, a descendant naturally of Abraham, that all of them are going to be blessed. The family of faith, God's family of adopted children, is bigger than just a natural Jew. It includes Gentiles of all, every nation, kindred, tongue. Okay? That's, that's good news for us. All right? All right? So that promise was made hundreds of years before the law. So the law did not change that promise. Hey, that's his point there. All right. For if the inheritance be of the law, it was no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. All right. So that leads to the question, verse 19. I'm going to try and try and explain this as, as simply as I can, because I know that this gets this gets complex, um, and it's a lot to hold on to. So Paul will do a question and answer thing. Y'all ever had a teacher who'll ask a question to then answer it? Right? Sometimes if you're in a class and they ask questions, they expect you to answer it. Well, he's, he's doing that. It's like the Socratic method in, in college or whatever we had where our teachers would yell at us if we did that. Right? It wasn't much fun. Not like that. Right? So he's going to ask the question. All right, so if the law came after and it didn't change the promise, 19 is, wherefore then serveth the law? What was the purpose? What did the law do? Why did it add? And so the next clause answers it. It was added because of transgressions. And he's going to expand that answer in just a second. So it's added because of sin. How long was it to operate? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. All right? So you have the law being given, and it's going to operate until Christ comes. That's the seed that the promise was made to, to Abraham and his seed. All right? 
He made that promise to him, and it's going to operate until he would come. And it was ordained, set down, prescribed, by angels in the hands of a mediator. All right, and that mediator there under the law is Moses. Right? Remember Moses, we're reading in Exodus how the people were there at Mount Sinai, and God told him to come to the base of the mountain. He's going to talk to them, and he talked to them out loud. And that's how you had the Ten Commandments. They weren't written down at first. It was verbally spoken. The fire was coming on the mountain. The smoke was going up. The thunder and the, the trumpets and the lightning. This was a scary scene. And the voice of God was so terrifying to these people. They started backing up. And they heard it. But they said, Moses, we don't want to hear anymore. You go talk to him. All right? He had to be a go-between, a mediator. Now, Mo Moses was not a perfect mediator, right? He was a sinful man, too. Even in that, he points to what Jesus is going to do. Jesus, as God and as man, can be the successful mediator. And a mediator, why do you have to have a mediator? You ever, ever heard of, we've got to go to mediation, right? Business law, that, that happens a lot. It's a way to resolve conflicts. You have two parties that are at odds, right? Well, under the law, the party that is aggrieved is God, okay? He's the party that's aggrieved who's been wronged against by your Sins, right? There is, that is why the law is brought us, to teach us about our sins, to impute them to us, to show how bad we are and how we can't measure it up. And so there's this scene set up of that the whole structure of the law is showing that there is a conflict, all right? Sometimes ignorance is bliss, right? You don't realize that you've got a problem with somebody to, oh, we got a problem, right? Well, the law is letting you know there's a problem, all right? And then God's going to give the solution in Christ, right? Now, the mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. So God's one of those parties that the mediator is having to go, go between. So that's what the law is setting up then. All right, so is the law then against the promise of God? Does the law conflict with that promise that was given to Abraham and to Christ at the benefit of all? See, does the law fight against that? The answer is no, it doesn't. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Now, to live under the law, what must you do? To live, you must keep it all perfectly. Right? If you fail in one jot or tittle, one littlest bit, you have failed in it all. And the sentence under the law for the sin is death, right? The law leads to death, right? That's what our sins lead to. It's to teach us that. The sins lead to death. There's not a law that can be given that can lead to life. If it were possible, it says them, that would have happened. But Scripture hath concluded all under sin. All right. Who's under sin? All. Well, what about so-and-so? Insured exception here. No? Me? Yeah, I'm under sin. My sweet, cute, perfect little one-year-old girl over there? Yeah, she's under sin too, right? She's got an attitude. She's this tall and her attitude's this tall. It's it's amazing, right? We're born, we're conceived sinners, right? There's no exception to that. Okay? All under sin. That's what the law establishes. It shows there's none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who can live up to it. There's no one who can do it perfectly. Why? The scriptures that all are concluded under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. It's showing the law doesn't get you there. Right? It's the faith in what Christ has done that shows you what has been done for you. So you've got, again, this concept of what are you doing and what has he done, all right? And your connection to what has he done, that connection is called faith, all right? And that faith doesn't come from you, 
right? That's a gift that's given to you. That is the channel which you have, the connection to Christ, that you can believe he is who he says he is. Because guess what, folks? There are some who cannot believe and will never believe, right? And that's a hard thing for us to hear. And our, 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 our most denominations don't teach that. But you go read Jesus' words when he's talking. Jesus, like best preacher ever, son of God, God, he's talking and he's saying to these scribes and Pharisees is that you cannot believe because they were not of his father. So if you have the gift of believing that Jesus Christ is the son of God, that's a gift from God, right? That is the connection that you have that you can see and understand and appreciate what he's done, all right? And our gift of faith is not consistent, all right? Sometimes, and not consistent even in our own day-to-day -day life, but among these others. So it's okay if your faith is as small as a grain of mustard seed, right? If you have any, that's a gift of God. And He loves you. All right, so it's not the law that got you that connection to Christ or that faith. It's the free gift from God. He's given it to you, right? So the Scriptures are teaching all under sin, and it's going to reveal, here's the answer. It's going to be Christ who did the work, but there's a timeline that hadn't been revealed yet. All right, From the law to Christ's coming is many hundreds of years. I haven't done the math recently, so I won't try and guess it. But a long time! Because you know, after Moses' day, you had the period of judges, which was like 400 years. Then you had a period of, of the kings, and then the division of the kingdoms, and then northern kingdom goes into captivity, and southern kingdom goes into captivity, and then there's a restoration. You've got all these big events occurring, and then like three or 400 years of silence, and then Christ. Right? So this is what's operating until the truth of what Christ is going to do. And it's not a new thing. It was a plan. That was what God, the Father, and the Son had determined to do before the foundation of the world. Right? It was when it was put into effect and revealed to us. That's what's going on. Right? So, But before the faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith. We didn't know which should afterwards be revealed. So... In that period of Jewish history, the Israelites only had the law because the good news hadn't been given yet. All right? The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, hadn't been revealed yet. All right? That was all they had. What was the purpose? The law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. All right, folks get bent out of shape on the word justified. All right? Justified can mean to be shown or to... Uh, to show to be just or to be regarded as just, your faith does not make you just. That's, that's the kicker. Folks will read that and say, oh, if I have faith, then I have been made just. If I just get some faith, let me scrounge some faith, let me go to my savings account on faith, and then I can be just. Right? That's not what it means. Your faith shows that you are just. Right? Christ's work has been imputed upon you. He's given you faith, and you have a connection to that work. By Him, He gave you that faith, and so that faith is an evidence that you're a part of that, that He's put you into that group. School, right? I passed. Whew. I took the bar. I passed. I became an attorney. You know what the bar sent me? A little card. It had a bar number on it, okay? If I whip out that card, if you ask, you know, are you an attorney, I can pull out that card and say, look, here's my bar card. Did that bar card make me an attorney? No, right? 
you can photocopy one. It doesn't make you an attorney, right? But it is evidence that something else has gone on that made me an attorney, right? So that's the same way with faith, right? Faith is the card that that's how you can see and display and others can see that something else has gone on. In this case, Christ's work has been imputed upon you. Right? He has given you new life. He's given you the Holy Ghost to dwell within you all the days of your life. You're never alone. You know, we talk about God never leaving and forsaking us. He's literally sent His Spirit to dwell with us at all times. That's good news, right? And so that faith, that's how you know, I have been made just, not because I earned it, right? Earning it is trying to do it under the law, right? Trying to establish my own righteousness. Can you establish your own righteousness? We try, but no, right? And that's the purpose of the law. It's showing that under the best circumstances, you still can't. All right, we have... Give me a brief tangent here. We have, in our culture, churches who have left just the pure worship of Christ and have tried to get into something called uh, social justice reform. If we could just change the external circumstances to be better, then people would be better, right? This is the, the assumption number one is that people are inherently good. You know, Scripture doesn't back that out. And it's only the external circumstances that are going on that make them do bad things. Therefore, if we make the things better, people will be good, right? That's, y'all you know, heard this concept? I'm not trying to make this up. This is something that goes on, right? And so they get very much in trying to fix the world here, okay? Now, I'm, please caution, I'm not saying do not show mercy and kindness and compassion. Individually, you're, 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 you're called to do that. Even your worst enemy, you're to do good and care for them, right? However, the purpose of the church is not to fix the world and not to fix the external circumstances so that people can then be good. Israel is your experiment, all right? You have a people specifically chosen from God, and he said, I'm going to bless you beyond all measure. You're going to have wealth. You're going to have, everyone's going to have an equal portion of land. You've got inheritance um, that can't be taken away from you. You've got um, abundance of food and clothing and everything. There, there wouldn't be any poor there, right? You just have to obey, right? So they had the best of everything, but did they obey? Did they do what was good? No. So fixing the external stuff does not fix the internal issue. And what they don't know and they don't acknowledge is that inherently we're, we're, we're broken, right? Sin has broken us. We are not good and right on our own. On our own, we're not. But when God awakens us, quickens us, gives us life, puts his Holy Spirit within us, you now have the capacity to do good, to serve God, to put others first in a way that doesn't make any sense to your natural self. Right? And who gets the credit for that? You? No! Because what enables you to do it? Him. Okay? So... The law was showing the need of a Savior, showing that you can't do it, that you're not righteous in and of yourself. All right? That was the schoolmaster. That's the lesson that's teaching. All right? But after that faith has come, Christ has now come, the truth is now revealed, do you have to go back to that training wheels version? No.
are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. You are adopted into God's family. Now, if that doesn't, if that doesn't stir something within you today, then we've kind of got our hearts hardened. Our ears are, are thickened. That God chose you individually and adopted you even though you were not worthy of adoption. Cleaned you up by having His Son pay the price for your sins to bring you into His family. And that's where you are now, secure. And He'll never cast you out. That's good news. Okay? For ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You didn't become the children of God because you were doing so good and living so perfectly. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That baptized into Christ, I think that's talking about when you are born again. Right? When the Spirit baptized, there's one, John would say, there's one who comes after who's going to baptize you um, with the Holy Ghost. Right? As opposed to just the little water. When you have been baptized into Christ and you have uh, had the indwelling Spirit, Holy Spirit put in you by God in His own perfect timing, you have put on Christ. You have the new man within you. to grow. We've got to grow in grace. We're going to continue to struggle with that old man. He don't go away. But he's not in charge anymore. Okay? Alright? So, in this dichotomy between doing and what has been done for you, under the old system, there was very much walls that went up. Right? If you were a natural Jew, you could only marry natural Jews. You know, under the rabbinical traditions that were put on top of that, you could only eat with those within your faith. Anybody else was unclean. And so when it gets here in verse 28, it says there's no more Jew or Greek. Right? Greek means you know, to be just broad, anyone who's a non-Jew. Right? Those divisions have gone away. Right? In the family of God, there's one family. Right? It's not like you, know, you ever go to the family and family reunion, you're like, well, we don't, we don't associate with those over there. Right? They're that different branch. Right? Or they've got theirs across. No, it's, it's, it's one one family, so it doesn't matter your natural um, race, ethnicity, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, neither bond nor free, whether you're male or female, right? Within Christ, you're all equally loved and equally That's ignoring a whole lot of other verses, all right? God's given us different roles, and we're to fulfill those the best of our ability, so we don't take that one verse and blow up others. But the truth is, is just because I'm a man does not mean in God's eyes I have any more value than a sister. All right? And that's some radical language for back then. All right? But it's true. All right? You are all equally adopted and loved by God the Father and His Son. All right? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you're all one. That's unified in that one family. Okay? And if you be Christ's, all right, if you're Christ's, which you are when you're born again, it's you've got faith. He's let you know you're one of mine. Then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All right? So that promise was made way back to Abraham, hundreds of years before the law. That lets you know you were included in that. Okay? And it wasn't 
the keeping of the law that got you there. Right? That's what he's trying to establish for all this. All right. Now he's going to give a parable in chapter 4. A parable. Um, I said, now, that, now I say that an heir, as long as he a child, differing nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. All right. So imagine you have a very rich child. All right. Dad is daddy warbucks, whatever. But the child is six. Can the six-year-old child march into the factory and say, I want this line to do this and this line to do this and sell the stocks? Right? They say, get out of here, kid. I'm the owner's son. You're a child. It does not matter, right? You need to go back to your governor or your tutor or whoever's responsible for your little self, and you go sit and wait there until dad says he's grown up now, and now he's not under those authority anymore. So that's the illustration there is that even though one is an heir to a great fortune, when he's still a child, there are things that are over him and, and, and authorities. Right? He's using that illustration to say that's how it was with the law. right? And our understanding, it hadn't fully been revealed. right? So at the time of the Jews, even so, we, when we were children, were under bondage under the elements of the world. So those tutors and governors for that little rich child, right, who he can't tell what to do, right? he has to submit to them at that point. Right? It's the same concept there. When, when the Jews were under the law, it was a teaching time. Right? But the fullness and the liberty that would come afterwards hadn't been revealed until the time appointed by the Father. When was that going to happen? That's when Christ comes. And that's when liberty comes. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son. Right? Jesus Christ, His Son. He sent Him forth. Made of a woman. Why is that in there? That's talking about the fulfillment of that first prophecy back in Genesis. When he's talking to Eve and she is, um, has sinned. And he tells her that um, her seed would bruise the head of that serpent. And the serpent would bruise his heel. Right? It's a, a tiny glimpse, right? not plainly revealed. tiny glimpse of the work that Jesus was going to come. That the Savior was going to come. He was going to be born of a woman. And that he would defeat that serpent. He would crush that serpent's head. Made of a woman. Right? He would send forth his son. Made of a woman. Made under the law. Right? Jesus was born into a Jewish family. Right? His adopted father, Joseph. He was a descendant of King David. Right? That's how Jesus has the, the right to that legacy of being the heir to David's throne. Um, he was under the law. And he lived under the law. And he lived it perfectly. Right? And he's the only one that ever has. But what did he do? He did it to redeem them that were under the law. Right? To pay the price for them. To adopt them by paying off that debt. That we might receive the adoption of sons. So he did the work. Right? He came. He lived perfectly. He had the righteous life. He did the work. And by it, we're redeemed. And we are adopted to be his sons. All right? And because you're sons, right? Because you are already sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. Right? How did Jesus address God, the Father, throughout almost His entire time here below? Father, right? just addressed him as God is when he was on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Because at that point, the sins of all of us are being put upon him. Right? 
But because of that work, when He gives you the Holy Spirit, when He gives you new life, and there's a Spirit that goes within you, you can cry out, Father! My Father! My Heavenly Father! Right? That's not just an arbitrary title. It's not just a sign of respect, but it's a description of the relationship that He has made by Jesus' work. Right? What evidence do you have of that? That you can cry out. That that Spirit of His Son is within you crying out to Him. That's the evidence that you have. That's the faith that you have of what He's done. Wherefore, because of that, you're no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. You have been made an heir. You know, heirs are entitled to an inheritance. Right? Guys, I'm sorry that when I die, you may be my heirs. an inheritance prepared for you that's beyond your reckoning, beyond your accounting, beyond anything that you can describe or understand. It's beyond value. And it doesn't change. It doesn't get taxed. It doesn't go away. It doesn't diminish in value. Interest and inflation don't eat it up. Right? All the earthly inheritance, eventually, they go away. But that which He has prepared for you to be in His family and to be in His presence for forever is permanent. You have been made an heir. So, yes, you're a son, but you're not the red-headed stepchild of, oh, go sit over there, and then we're going to have the rest of our family over here, right? There's no outside in God's family. You're all in, all a joint heir, all having access to Him. How be it, all right, question, how be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no God. So let's learn a little bit about the Galatians. What did they worship before Paul came and taught them? You worship them which by nature are no God. Right? They weren't keeping the law beforehand. Right? Paul came and taught them the truth of Jesus Christ. They got to hear big picture. And they started worshiping God. And they had faith in Him. They were given faith by God and they were, they were excited about it. He said, so back then, before I came, what did you do? You gave service. You had these rituals, whatever it is you had to do, these ordinances that you were subject to to worship those idols, you were doing that. Alright? But now, after you have known God, the truth has been revealed to you, His Spirit's come in, your heart where you're crying out of a Father, you're no, you know God, or rather are known of God. That's a thought. Just chew on that a minute. That is one of His children who He sent His Spirit into your heart and you can cry out of a Father. He knows you individually not some collective yes son go save some right cast cast a big net as many as you can haul in many as you let you that's fine but he knows you you are known of god warts and all and yet he still loves you and that love won't change so now you are doing that service as a gentile as an idolater worshiping those you know not gods, the things of stone or gold or whatever it is you're bound down to, now that you're known of God and you know the truth of what He's done, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? He said, why are you going back to what the Jews were under, those weak and worldly elements? It's like the Tahooters and you are, you're, you're grown up like that rich kid who's grown up. 
and you're entitled to the inheritance. Why would you go voluntarily subject yourself to go be subject unto tutors and schoolmasters again? Doesn't make sense. Any of y'all want to go back to high school? Let's make it worse. Anyone want to go back to kindergarten? Stand in line. Put a bubble in your mouth. You may now go to lunch. You've got 10 minutes, right? There's a lot of arbitrary rules about crowd control with little people, right? Any of y'all want to volunteer to go back to that? No, right? But it's the same concept. When you try to take Old Testament ceremonial law and put that in as a condition of you must do this in order for Christ's work to be effective, it's just as silly as volunteering to go back to elementary school and live your life under those rules, okay? those circumstances, and trying to think that that will make you better. All right? I, I walk down the hallway with a bubble in my mouth all the time now, and I'm better, better than you. Where's your bubble in the mouth? It's silly, but that's what's been going on. All right? Why would you add those elements? Why do you desire again to be in bondage? All right? Ye observe days and months and times and years. All right? So under the... ...to do any work. All right? You had to observe it. If you didn't, it was a sin. All right? You had to go... The Jerusalem for feasts, um, years, every seventh year, you had to let your crops lay fallow. Right? Six years you could plant, seven years, sorry, you got to wait till year eight. Right? You had to do that. Failure to do that was disobedience to God. Y'all, we're not under that regime. Okay? Now, as a preacher, part of it. Part of, I don't like to stand up here and say, it's not a sin if you miss church. Because I don't want you to feel like it's okay. Right? It's not a sin. That does not make it wise. Okay? If there is an anorexic person, and they tell you, I'm going to skip a meal, will you tell them, that's a good idea? No, right? That's something they struggle with. Their body needs that nourishment. They need it regularly. And if someone says, it's okay, they'll continue and continue and continue, right? Y'all, we're, we're like spiritually anorexic. It is good for us to be here. We need it. We need that daily nourishment in the Word. We need the weekly encouragement. And so it is good. It is profitable, all right? But if you miss a Sunday, it's not a sin. Is it good for you to be here? Absolutely. Does it hurt you if you're not? Yes. Right? And this requires some discernment to even get up here and say that. Right? But this is but this is the truth. Okay? So these uh, people had come into the Galatians and saying, Jesus is great, but you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and, and y'all really ought to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. Right? And all those things were given to the Jews at that time before Christ had come. And they don't transfer over, okay? And so Paul is Paul's distressed, right? He can't physically be there, and so he's having to send a letter trying to address all these things. He says, I'm, I'm afraid of you. Not that they're going to hurt him, but he's afraid that all the time and energy and love that he spent pouring into them is going to be wasted. That if they're going to go off on this offshoot, that they're not going to be faithfully serving, and they're going to put all these chains back upon themselves. Because what are you going to do? Oh, I missed 
I missed that monthly feast. Oh, no. I can't make it to Jerusalem. Ah, right? Their walk with God is going to get harder and harder and harder because the more that they're under that law, what will they discover? You can't live up to it. As opposed to the beauty of grace is that Christ has done the work perfectly. Okay? I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. I don't want the time that I spent preaching and teaching to you to have been worthless. Brethren, I beseech you, I'm begging you, be as I am, for I am as you are. So we're, we're the same. There's not a difference. Follow my pattern. You've not injured me at all. He said, you haven't done that. You haven't hurt my feelings. You know, I'm not mad at you because you're not doing what I say. Right? Sometimes we get puffy because our advice isn't followed. Right? It's not that. He says, it's not my ego that's wounded. You haven't hurt me, but I care about you and the truth, and I want you to follow the pattern that I'm trying to live out. Right? You know, all right, so he's going to go back to a flashback of when he first came to Galatia, the region there. He says that, you know how through the infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. All right, so Paul had some kind of thorn in the flesh. We know he asked God three times, I think it's in Corinthians, Lord, take this away. And God said, no. My grace is sufficient. What it is, don't know. Folks have spent a lot of time speculating. Doesn't say. It says it, but you know that I had that, that, that and it was apparently visible. They knew about it. Um, you know how through the infirmity of the flesh I preach. So in spite of what's going on with him physically, I still preach the gospel unto you at first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, so something you know physically wrong with him, I would speculate it was probably gross based on what came next. You despise not, nor rejected. All right. You ever do a double take when you meet somebody who's got different features, right? They're for missing some digits. I was playing with a saw this weekend. I was really worried I was going to miss some digits, right? Sometimes we act differently about somebody who's got some physical defect or, or, or something they're struggling with, right? We do. He said that in spite of how I looked, you didn't reject me. You didn't despise me. Rather, you received me as a messenger from God, as an angel from God, even as Christ Jesus. Being sent from Christ, they received his message with joy. Right? Where is the blessedness you spake of? And so they were so happy and they were blessing him and they were encouraged. He says, for I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Does that mean his thorn was in his eye? I don't know. But that's a pretty dramatic gesture for you to care about somebody who's just come into town who's preaching you this truth so much so that you if it was possible you would have given your very own eyes to them right that's some serious excitement and love and fervor that's where they were now what's happened since he left they've been led astray and he's he's upset about it right you would have given them to me that's how much you expressed your love to me then he says am i therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth. Y'all, okay? do we have to speak the truth? Yeah. Do we speak it as hard-nosed jerks? No. Go read Ephesians about speaking the truth in love. All right? But we still have to speak the truth. Now, when somebody speaks the truth to us, and it's something that convicts us, they don't become our enemy. You know what an enemy will do? They'll agree with you. Whatever you're doing, oh, it's fine. Right? Yes, men. Right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend will tell you the truth. 
particularly in the context of here's what the Lord's word says. Because y'all, we all get off base. It's part of the structure of the church is that we're to provoke one another back to good works. Okay? Be a mutual encouragement. All right? Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I'm writing you these things that what you're doing is wrong. Am I become your enemy? You love me so much. All right? And he talks about those who are teaching him. They zealously affect you, but not well. So these people have come in and they've stirred you up. They've stirred the pot. They've got you all on fire for this thing. They're chasing down what they think to be a good thing. He says, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. He's like, they're doing this even if it causes you to be you know, separated from all the other churches that you would have just be followers of them because it makes them look good. Right? It's their ego, their pride. It is, and he says, but it is good to be zealously affected in a good thing. Right? There are things to get excited about and to churn after and to be doggedly persistent about pursuing. But we need to be very discerning about what those are. Right? We can be doggedly persistent about the wrong thing. Right? In that case, it's not, oh, I'm just so, you know, got such great work ethic. It's no, you're just being stubborn. <laughs> Right? You're chasing the wrong thing. So it's got to be have that discernment about what is the good thing. Right? That's part of the reason that we're growing up. Is that we concern between that which is good and that which is best. Right? We're going to have a range of situations in our life where we have to make decisions. Right? It is good to be zealously affected always in the good thing. And not only when I'm present with you. He said, I don't want you to just be you know, stable and faithful and chasing the good things when I'm there to stand over you. Paul was a very busy fellow, right? He couldn't stay in one location very long. I think he was at Corinth for over 18 months and Ephesus for a couple years. And those were kind of the longer stays, but for the most part, he was going around and teaching other people. And so he needed them to remain steadfast even if he wasn't there. It says, My little children of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He says, All right, I am trying to teach you. It's like I'm laboring again. So that the proper concept in your mind of what Christ is, what he's done, who he is, right? He's not trying to cause you to be born again. He's already said, y'all are believers. The Spirit of God's already come into you crying, Abba, Father. I'm not trying to make you be born again. But you as believers, I want you to have a proper understanding in your head about who Christ is and not a distorted version, right? The most common distorted version today is that God is up in heaven and Christ is sitting there wringing his hands saying, I sure hope so-and-so will let me save them. Scripture doesn't back that up. We believe in a victorious Savior. We believe that Jesus Christ did what he came to do and that he accomplished it. Right? And so we need to have a proper understanding of who Christ is. Right? How do we tailor that? How do we understand it? We read about it, right? Not my opinion. My opinion doesn't matter for anything. Unless it's coming from, this is my understanding from this, and you go look it up and you have the Lord lead you to it as well, right? My little children of whom I travail, that means to labor, um, giving birth. I labor and uh, travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. He's addressing this. These are like my little children. Like they, they've been, they've been led astray, right? Y'all ever, ever pull your children aside and you change your tone a little bit, right? But you know this is serious, and this doesn't need to happen again, right? 
So he said, I wish I could be there and change my tone so you would know, right? I stand in doubt. I'm concerned for the path that you're on. He wants them to understand the urgency of how serious this is and how they need to change. All right. And then he's going to give an illustration. It's going to take up the rest of the chapter. And I may not be able to unpack this fully, but let's, let's see what we can do. It says, tell me, ye that desire to be under the law. Because that's what they're saying they want to do. They want to be subject to the law. He says, all right, you who desire, have you read it? Do you not hear the law? And so he's going to unpack something. And he's going to use uh, Abraham as example. For it is written, Abraham had two sons, right? God told Abraham, come out of Ur of the Chaldees. You go to Canaan. He gets in there. He comes in. He's 75 years old. And God had promised him that this land was going to be for you and your descendants, right? 75-year-old man. You know how many kids he had? Zero. Right? And he waits around for about 10 years. And so he and his wife say, well, I guess if we're going to have some kids, we've got to figure out something to do. And so Sarah says, well, I've got my, my handmaid over here. Her name's Hagar. She's Egyptian. Just different story there. But why don't you take her and, uh, and, and she could have a kid, and I'll just count that as my kid through her, Right? It's a human solution, right? God promised that we're going to have kids. Let's work it out without waiting on them, right? So they do. And so at 86 is when Abraham has his first son. Not the son of his wife. Not the son that God had promised him, but the one that they took it into their own hands to try to deal with. So that was who's described here is described Agar in the Old Testament. has an H in it. It's the same word, uh, Hagar, right? So you had one that was born to Hagar, and then, fast forward another 13 years. He's been in the land almost a quarter century, and he still has not had that child of promise. And so in 99, the Lord revisits him again and tells him, you're going to have the son that I promised you. It's not Ishmael, the, the son that was born to Hagar. You're going to have it. Your wife, who's now 90, right? She's going to have the time of life come back to her, 89 at that point. Um, so she'd already gone through menopause. She was, she was done. It was, it was a miracle for both accounts, right? So she's going to. And you know what happened? She did. Was it a miracle? Yes. Really a double miracle, one for each side. You know, he was described as him as good as dead, right? He's 100, she's 90, and they have a baby boy. She was able to successfully conceive. She was able to carry him to term, to have a birth back then with very limited medical stuff and survive it. And then um, watch him grow up, right? A miracle, right? So there's two children that Abraham had. That's, that's your little mini recap for 22. Abraham had two sons, one by the bondmaid, Hagar, it's Ishmael, the other by the, the free woman, his wife, Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. What was the solution that they came up with to have Ishmael, right? It was a fleshly solution. It was men's mind. It was their efforts. Here, we're going to make this happen. God said something will happen. We're going to do it for him. Right? But he that was of the free woman, the son of Sarah, the free woman, right? It was by the promise. God had made a promise. You're gonna have a son. You're gonna came up, you're gonna name him Isaac, because when I told you about this, you know what Abraham did? He laughed. You know what Isaac means? Laughter. You're gonna name your son laughter as a reminder <laughs> that you didn't believe me, that you doubted, right? He that was born after the free woman was a promise. God gave it. It was a miracle, right? Abraham couldn't have done it on his own, right? So these things are an allegory. All right, you'll go back to your high school literature classes. What's an allegory? It is an extended metaphor. All right, 
It's a metaphor that, that has long implications, all right? So even though these people are real, this is to teach a lesson, to teach a message, all right? That's the metaphor. These two things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants, one which was given on Mount Sinai. What was given on Mount Sinai? The law, all right? The one which differs from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. So Hagar and her descendants, that's like Mount Sinai. All right, it's a metaphor that her as a bondwoman, her descendants are the children of a bondwoman. They become those who are under bondage. Right? That's the first covenant. That's the law. Right? Under the law is bondage. The end of that is death. Right? Under the free woman, well, let's keep going. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. That's where the law was given. And answereth to Jerusalem, that's the natural city of Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. So that's referring to, to the Jews under the law, all right? They're in that bondage. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free. That Jerusalem is pointing to heaven, all right? The real city of peace, not the one here, all right? How much peace has there been in the nation of the city of Jerusalem for like the last 2,000 years? Like none, right? It's been strife and conflict. You can't even pray where you want to without somebody getting upset, right? That's not the city of peace. The real city of peace, Jerusalem, which means peace, right? Um, is above. It's free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren, that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she that hath a husband. All right, and that's quoting um, Isaiah 54.1. But the idea is that the family of God, the mother of those, is not one that you can see. It's not like... Um, the Jews where you had, here's your child, and here's your child, and here's your child, and here's your child. But the family of God, you can't see it, right? It's, this, it's a spiritual birth, and so even though you can't see someone giving birth and having pain or whatever, right? There's still a massive family of God, right? And that's the product that we all belong to in that heavenly Jerusalem, right? We, brethren, now we, brethren, as Isaac, are the children of promise. So, Sarah's descendants, Sarah points to the Jerusalem above, the free woman, right? Her descendants are free. They're the sons, they're the heirs, as opposed to Hagar, that which is in the flesh. It's bondage, it's slavery. Why would you want to take the freedom and go put on the role of the servant, right? That's what he's pointing out to them, too, so they can see how ludicrous it is. But, as then... He that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, so is now. So, back then, when uh, young Isaac was born and he's weaned, his older brother, he was 13 when he was born, he's now 13, 14, 15. You know what they did when, they, when Isaac was weaned? They had a party. Dad's so excited. You know, the son that had been promised all those years is here. Now he's no longer breastfeeding. He's, he's starting to grow up, right? Two, three, I don't know, right? His older brother, what was he doing? He's making fun of him. He was mocking him, and boy, did that make Sarah mad. Get him out there. He's not going to be an heir with my son. And from a natural perspective, we look at that story, and say, oh, that feels harsh. Right? But that's the point. This is an allegory to now is that that bondwoman and the son, they are cast out. They're separated. That which is just the flesh is not the child of promise, all right? And so, then that was born after the fail, persecuted him that was born after the Spirit. He says, so is it now. He says, that pattern continues. 
So these folks are most likely having some trials and tribulations. We know that they had some, some issues from being followers of Christ, that those who um, were natural Jews were giving them a hard time about it. Right? Paul gave people a real hard time about that before the Lord worked on him, right? I mean, if Paul, pulled, if Paul, when he was still Saul, pulled in the parking lot here, we'd know we'd about to have a bad day, right? Because he'd come and throw our, our took us in jail. And when it came time to have, we need some witnesses so we can put these folks to death. He's like, I volunteer. Put them to death. Is that some persecution? <laughs> yeah. But that's what the Jews were doing to those who followed Jesus Christ at that time. And so he says, it makes sense that those who are under the flesh are persecuting those who are the spirits. If that was a pattern back then in that metaphor, that allegory with Ishmael and Isaac, it makes sense now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman of son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, he's like, here's the good news. We're not children of the bondwoman. We're not under that. But we're children of the free. Now, is that a lot to take in? Probably so. Is that something you need to go home and chew about and read it? And go read Genesis, you know, so that's around 12 or something. Read, 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 read the stories of Abraham, you know, from when he first starts being called out all the way to after um, Hagar and Ishmael are cast out. And then go back and reread this. Think about this and see what God is, even in that, is setting up for a lesson for us. And all of that is pointing to the promise that was given freely because of the work of Jesus Christ. That's what it all comes back to, is that we get off target when we start trying to put anything else in Christ's place. Christ is enough. Master is in charge. Right? He's the supreme. Right? That's who we worship. That's who we serve. That's who gets all the credit for salvation. And he's the one that we're looking to day to day as we have to make decisions about how do we go about serving him? What would please him? Not my opinion, not my uh, feelings or gut or preference or whatever. We could do a lot where we try to say, well, this is how I will serve God. It's really just taking what we already want to do and trying to slap it up on Christ. All right? That's not our role. And as we get later in this chapter, we're going to look at, okay, these are true, right? It's not your self-righteousness that determines you going to heaven, right? But that also doesn't mean that you live any old way, right? No, you're not under the law, but because you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, you need to walk in the Spirit, and you need to be led by the Spirit, and you need to pursue things that glorify and please God. And that'll tee that up for next week. Thank you all for your time and attention.